We have gathered tonight to consider the subject, Understanding the Millennium. And uh, this will complete the trilogy of uh, doctrinal concerns we have had that have dealt with an end times focus, right? We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the notion of a tribulation, a seven-year tribulation. And tonight, the millennium. Uh, Not all biblical doctrines are ranked with the same degree of importance, it's important we recognize this. We could, we could, for instance, illustrate doctrinal uh, truths from Scripture with different tiers of importance. You know, first tier or first tier issues or doctrines, these would help us identify who is a Christian. We would, we would identify first tier issues as those concerned with the Trinity, the nature of God Himself, or who Jesus is specifically, the person and work of Christ. What it means that someone is saved. It's not as if someone can be a Christian and believe whatever they want about those particular things. Those are actually first tier issues. Second tier issues help us to identify who we gather with on a regular basis in church worship, church membership. This would include, with second tier issues, how your church is organized and governed. What is believed about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper? When you think about the various denominations, in other words, that are comprised of confessing Christians, these denominations gather where they do and how they do because of certain convictions they have on these matters. How a church is to be governed and organized, what they believe about the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Third tier issues. Third tier issues are what we can identify as what believers in a local church can disagree on and yet still be united in their local church together and on the mission of the gospel. And and it is a widespread conviction among those who would understand doctrinal rankings in these kinds of tiers that end times matters are third tier issues. Nobody's salvation is at stake. No one's The truthfulness of God's word is not at stake on a matter of what someone believes about certain end times details. In fact, you can have people within a local church disagreeing on issues of whether there will be a tribulation or a rapture. Or how to understand the millennium and the particular details on timelines that are part of the widespread study of the church of Christ. So our topic tonight is a third tier issue. I'm not assuming you all agree with my own convictions about this. Um, I've not always held the same view on end times matters that I currently hold. And who knows, 10 years from now, if I will tweak and think differently about certain matters. This is not a primary issue. And so it's not as important that we come to a right understanding on this as compared to like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, But we have had previous Wednesday night instructions when we had discussed the notion of the rapture and a tribulation. And so I obviously have convictions on these end times topics. We just want to know quite clearly where this falls with importance. It is not unimportant. It is not, though, of primary importance. It is possible for people to be in the same church worshiping together with different conclusions on end times issues. What about this word millennium, though? After thinking about the ranking of doctrines, the millennial verses themselves appear in Revelation chapter 20. And the word millennium is from a Latin phrase, millennium, which means thousand years. The millennium is a way of describing the use of thousand years in a series of verses. The phrase thousand years occurs in Revelation chapter 20 six times. And it is the only time in any chapter of the Bible where the phrase thousand years is used to describe some particular span of time. There are certain figurative expressions that the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills or a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. These are figurative expressions that have different um, interpretations, unlike what we're dealing with tonight. We're talking about the doctrine and the teaching of the millennium. And that's not what 2 Peter 3 is about or that passage from Psalms about the thousand uh, cattle on a thousand hills. When we're dealing with what is um, summed up under the doctrine of the millennium, the Bible's teaching on the millennium, we're dealing with one chapter that uses the language of thousand years, and it uses it six times. In uh, chapter uh, 20 of Revelation. 
So those are the millennium verses. And now we want to spend some moments looking at how this has been viewed. I did not grow up knowing that there was more than one way to view Revelation 20. And uh, similar to some of the personal anecdotes I'd shared with you in our previous times that dealt with end times matters. And it was uh, quite eye-opening to think about different angles on this subject and different ways people have viewed it throughout church history. And you can lump the teachings about the millennium into four big categories. So we're going to call these the four main views. Um, to just mention them out loud, they are dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. That's what each of these views are about. Now notice that the word millennialism is in common with each of these. But there are some prefixes that have been added. There's premillennialism. In fact, dispensational premillennialism has more than a prefix. It's got a whole other word describing it. And then historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Each of these are, are named what they are in reference to when Christ's return is, his second coming. Dispensational premillennialism believes that Christ's return is pre this millennium, before this thousand years. Dispensational is a word that also carries with it some other end times details. More on that in a moment. Historic premillennialism doesn't carry some of the dispensational details. It looks toward a second coming premillennium. Amillennialism, the ah there means no or not. Think about a theist who believes that there is a God, and an atheist, you wouldn't pronounce it atheist, but uh, an atheist or an amillennialist, it's to negate something. So an amillennialist denies a certain view of the millennium. It can sound like the position that is just negative all around, when really what it's trying to do is say, I don't believe that there is a particular understanding of this millennium. There is a positive case to be made, uh, but the, the name itself is quite unfortunate. It just sounds like you're opposed. Uh, but amillennialism, uh, that's the third view. Postmillennialism believes that the coming of Christ will be post or after a, per a period of time known as the millennium. So how do these, how do these views work out in their detail? Let's think about dispensational premillennialism. This is the most popular view of the end times in America. Now, I've tried to show historically in our two previous sessions together dealing with the tribulation and before that the rapture, that the dispensational part of premillennialism that looks to an age of the church to end with a rapture, followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed then by the second coming that launches a thousand-year millennium, that this schema, this detailed timeline, is not found earlier than the 1800s. It is not an old way of reading Revelation 20. It is a relatively new, actually, in church history. And this dispensational premillennialism views details more than just the millennium. It views the thousand years as having this particular literal role, but rapture of the church and seven-year tribulation. But the premillennial part, what do we have in mind? Well, notice right before the thousand years on this uh, brief chart on the board, I have the word, the phrase second coming. So the second coming, the Lord Jesus' return, leads toward a thousand years of an earthly reign of the Lord Jesus from Jerusalem. So there's a thousand year reign on earth, the earthly reign of Christ, after his second coming. That comes to an end, and the Lord ushers in, after the final judgment, the eternal states for the righteous and the wicked. We would say that the millennium would be followed, in other words, by the coming together of the new heavens and new earth. And the final condemnation of the wicked under the eternal judgment of God um, in the lake of fire or, or hell. Now, eternal states, that takes, uh, to the, takes us to the very end of that timeline. So that we're in the age of the church. Dispensational premillennialism says we're looking now toward the rapture when the church will be removed. There will be a seven-year tribulation. Thousand years will follow once Christ returns in his second coming. And that at the final judgment, at the end of those thousand years, eternal states are established. Historic premillennialism takes part of that timeline, doesn't it? You can notice here, you've got the cross, the work of Jesus, and then we await his second coming. So historic premillennialism is not looking toward a rapture of the church or a seven-year tribulation. They're looking toward the second coming of Christ, 
who will, which will establish the earthly reign of Jesus for a thousand years from Jerusalem. And then that will be followed by the judgment of the wicked and the eternal states for the righteous and the unrighteous. Amillennialism does not believe that there is a literal thousand year reign on earth. That is what the ah refers to. So the ah is a negating of the premillennial view. That's basically what's happening. Amillennialism says, I don't think that there is an earthly reign for a thousand years of Jesus from Jerusalem when he comes again. Instead, amillennialism says, we are awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, he raises the dead, judges the wicked, and establishes eternal states. That, that is what is coming. The new heavens and new earth, the final condemnation of the wicked when evil is vanquished. So the amillennialist view is the simplest of the four. It is the simplest of the four. And we come to the fourth one, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism believes some overlapping things with amillennialism. We're in the uh, time where the church of the Lord Jesus has been you know, ushered and, and, and filled and on mission by the Holy Spirit uh, to spread the gospel. But before the second coming, there will be tangible results of the gospel's effect, not just in one particular country or society, but throughout the world, where we can use the language, a Christianizing of countries. What could feel like, to use this phrase that has been used by postmillennialists, a kind of golden age, not because there's no more sin, not because there's no more death, but there's been such a minimizing of evil and a triumphing of the Christian message that there is um, a, a uniqueness here that is not insisted upon by an amillennialist. So postmillennialists believe that prior to the second coming of Christ, at some point, there will be a millennial period. doesn't have to be a literal thousand years, though. But they consider the millennium to be this reign and triumph of the gospel by the Lord Jesus and his spirit on the earth that has a palpable, tangible effect and experience across the world. The Lord Jesus will return in his second coming, which will basically be the capstone on this period. He will then establish eternal states as the dead are raised and evil is judged. So these are the four main views. Okay, Now, um, there are past and present adherents to each of these views. I'm going to mention some present adherents. And by present, I mean those in the 1900s and 2000s who hold to one of these views. Just to give you some examples, some of these names may seem familiar to you. Dispensational premillennialists would include people like Greg Laurie, Tim LaHaye, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur. Historic premillennialists would include people like John Piper, George Eldon Ladd, Dr. Al Mohler, Daryl Bach. Amillennialists would include people like A.W. Pink, J.I. Packer, Sam Storms, Greg Beal. Postmillennialists would include people like Greg Bonson, R.C. Sproul, Ian Murray, R.J. Rushdooney. You could keep adding to these lists. These are people who love the Bible, believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they disagree on what the millennium is. Okay, so and you, even with some of those names, you think, well, yeah, I mean, if you sat some of these people, theologians that you might have read from over the years, and if you sat them across from a table, it could get quite heated. And they, you know, they, and they love one another in the Lord, but it's to, it's to say... They, they have strong convictions about what Revelation 20 teaches. But rather than just thinking about some post-adherence, what, what about, on this fourth item here, what about the witness of church history? What have people believed during the history of the church? And I find uh, segments like this among the most fascinating segments doctrinally to read about. Because, and this should not surprise us, there has not been a single overarching view from the early church to now. But, but rather, a myriad of views on the early, in the, from the early church forward about premillennialism, amillennialism, without using those terms necessarily, but we have their writings. So as the writings of the early church fathers and theologians in the early centuries of the church have been studied, we can, we can bust a popular myth. A myth that is still unfortunately perpetuated, and it goes like this. Premillennialism was the view of the early church. We know that that is not true. It is very widely circulated, but that is not an accurate statement of the evidence. That statement, though, is sometimes made 
as an appeal for people to say, well, who are those closest to the lives of the apostles? Well, what about the early generations of the early church? So what did they believe about Revelation 20? And that means if you're appealing to that, that you'd say, then you should believe what they did. Because they were a lot closer to the apostles than we were, right? The problem is, premillennialism was not the only view in the early centuries of the church. In fact, there are writings from those who lived in the first century and second century and third century forward that have a mixed understanding about what the millennium is. There were teachers in the early centuries of the church who taught what we could label as premillennialism and teachers who taught what we could label amillennialism. In other words, there were people in the early centuries of the church who taught that the thousand years were a literal, literal reign of Christ on earth after he came in his second coming. And there were teachers who taught that this time was figurative or symbolic, that during the age of the church it meant something other than a literal thousand years. Who might some of those people be? Some examples in church history of premillennialists include people like Papias of Hierapolis, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Hippolytus of Rome. Now, Justin Martyr was a premillennialist, but I want you to listen to what he said in his work, Dialogue with Trypho the Jew, in chapter 80. From Justin Martyr's writings, he says, about Revelation 20, I admit to you, I and many others are of this opinion, and believe that such will take place. But on the other hand, I signify to you, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and true Christians think otherwise. And you need to listen to Justin Martyr as a premillennialist say, there, there is more than just this understanding about the millennium among true believers. And that that was the case from the early centuries of the church. Some examples of amillennialists, we would use that label to describe what they believe because we have their writings. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, a writing called the Epistle of Barnabas, another writing called the Epistle of Diognetus, a figure known as Origen, and a theologian named Cyprian. These are examples of the first and second and third centuries, but no one in the history of the church had a larger influence on a millennial view than Augustine did. Augustine lived, in the, born in the fourth century, into the fifth century lived, and the reign of Augustine's influence was so profound that Augustine's influence included his stance on the millennium. And if you were to look at church history as a whole, the dominant millennial view that has been the case over most of church history has been amillennialism. It was the case as a view taught in the early centuries of the church, but especially because Augustine was an amillennialist and people took to his writings so strongly, not just to follow in his theology, but particular doctrines and the way he read the scriptures, those were imitated in their appreciation of Augustine. Not uniformly, but you can see Augustine's influence stretching even into the Middle Ages. Calvin and Luther were amillennialists. When you, when you look at the majority of church history, what was the most common view from the early church forward? It's, in, it's uncontestable historically. It's the amillennial perspective. Now, there are challenges to each of these four views. And I hold one of these views. And in the last part of our time tonight, I'm going to suggest a way of reading it from the perspective I find most convincing. But I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be. But I don't think any of these views escape valid criticisms. That's what makes this so hard. So when we come to the views about the millennium, I mean, I think we need to come open-mindedly and humbly and with our hands not clasped as tight as we might be on the doctrine of the Trinity. And to say, you know what, let's, let's give it our best effort to try to read some evidence in the text and historically, but to recognize, man, really faithful readers of the Bible don't see it this way all the time. So what are some challenges to these views? Dispensational premillennialism. Let's start there. One of the first and trickiest challenges to this view is the lack of historical precedent for it. When a view arises within the 1800s, that is very late in church history. In other words, dispensational premillennialism has not been what most believers throughout church history have taught. 
It's not in any catechisms or creeds. And though it is something strongly taught within the 1800s and 1900s, it uh, is not an ancient view consistently held in church history at all. It does require, in dispensational premillennialism, an event known as the rapture followed by the seven-year tribulation before you get to the teaching of the millennium. And therefore, there is a complexity to this view. In order to demonstrate or defend dispensational premillennialism, you're reading things not just to defend a certain way of reading Revelation 20. You're also defending a removal of the church, known as the rapture, and a seven-year tribulation. You've got to deal with a lot of text more than just Revelation chapter 20 to establish all of that. In my judgment, it's too demanding of an attempt. And I've offered readings of the texts that have been given to support a rapture that I think are best read differently. And texts that support a seven-year tribulation that I think are best read differently. But again, I've named for us, even in our teaching tonight, people who think differently about this in church history, past or present. And so we want to think about what are some challenges to these views? Well, these are some of those that exist for the dispensational premillennial view. In fact, some of the specific challenges to the premillennialism part, I want to touch on in historic premillennialism. What about historic premillennialism? There is an assumption in both view one and view two that the number is a literal thousand years. The majority of premillennialists believe that the reference to a thousand years should be taken as a literal number. Now, this is tricky. It's tricky because you're dealing with the book of Revelation, which is a book filled with trumpets and seals and bowls and fire and rainbows and gems and walls and gates and dragons. And you have all sorts of what are widely understood to be figurative or symbolic things. Now, sometimes a dispensational premillennialist will say, well, I read Revelation literally, not symbolically. But then you read their books and they say this particular seal or trumpet represents a particular nuclear event in Russia or China or helicopters. And all of a sudden we realize they're reading things symbolically and figuratively as well. So it's not so simple as to say, well, what's the approach? It is, however, important for us to see the assumption that the number is a literal thousand years can be tricky in a book filled with numbers like 7, 10, 144, and 666, and 144,000, and 12, and 3.5, and and 42, and 1,260, all sorts of numbers. And in this chapter, there is a dragon with a chain, and I've never read a dispensational premillennialist that believed an actual dragon took an actual chain, but they will insist that the number itself is literal, while other features around the text they take symbolically. So I think an initial challenge for both view one and view two is that the number would have to be a thousand literal years in a highly symbolic and figuratively laden book. That's not so clear. It might not be. It could be symbolic. Second, Another challenge with the premillennial views, one and two, is that the thousand years separates the resurrection of the righteous from the resurrection of the wicked. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. Because when the Lord Jesus returns at the second coming for the dispensational premillennialist and for the historic premillennialist, the second coming involves the resurrection of the dead, but only of the righteous. It is then after a thousand year period that the resurrection of the wicked takes place. Now, why would that observation be important to know? Well, because the Gospels, the book of Acts and the letters of the New Testament talk about the resurrection of the dead. And in Matthew chapter 25, when the dead are gathered for judgment, both the righteous and the wicked are gathered as sheep and goats for the judgment. In Matthew chapter 12, he talks about those who are uh, in his, uh, or those who would be like of the days of Sodom and others who would have responded well, uh, or in the days of Nineveh in Matthew 12 as another example. Those righteous of the days of Nineveh will rise up to condemn those on the day of judgment who had rejected Jesus' public miracles and identity in ministry. In John chapter 5, just to read to you explicitly from one example, I know I'm tossing out a few biblical texts, but John 5.28 says, 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There are texts in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul that seem to suggest that the coming of Christ will involve the resurrection of the dead generally, both the righteous and the unrighteous. So what would be the issue with dispensational premillennialism or historic premillennialism? It would require a separation of resurrections that isn't clear anywhere else. And now I've heard premillennialists say, well, it's John, though, who gives us the last word about how the resurrections are going to unfold. So prior to this, in the Gospels and in the Acts and in the letters, it seemed like the coming of Christ would bring about the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. But not until Revelation 20 do we get the final word on that. This violates, though, a very well-established interpretive principle that throughout history people have taught you should allow the clear texts to help you interpret the unclear texts. And in Revelation 20, you're dealing with a dragon and a chain and an abyss and darkness and a period of years and judgment, which by all accounts throughout church history has not been abundantly clear to people. Look at the different views. In other words, I would suggest to you that rather than saying Revelation 20 should be the way or the lens that we read all the previous resurrection texts through, I would suggest to you that those earlier texts should be the decisive guidance on how to read Revelation 20. So historic premillennialism faces some difficulties, just like dispensational premillennialism, that the number would have to be a literal thousand years, and that what seems to be in the Gospels, Acts, and Letters, the coming of Christ to raise the dead, there would actually be a separation of the righteous raised and the the wicked raised, a separation of 1,000 years. Which means that you would have people who are raised from the dead after the coming of Christ. An additional problem that I think you could consider is when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 25 in the glory of his angels, Matthew 25 indicates that the righteous and the wicked are judged and separated. But according to dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism, the second coming of Christ occurs. And you know who gets judged? Nobody. Not for a thousand years. You actually don't have the coming of Christ bringing about the judgment of the wicked. The coming of Christ involves the resurrection of the dead, but the Lord Jesus reigns for a thousand years, and the final judgment of the wicked doesn't occur at his second coming. That is what is required as an assumption for view one and view two, that the coming of Christ occur and that the wicked are not judged at it. And what I want to suggest to you is the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the letters give you a different indication that the people of God long for the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ for when he comes the wicked experience judgment let's think about amillennialism amillennialism has some problems first of all in Revelation chapter 20 there is this statement about Satan being bound Satan being bound And the amillennialist must insist that Satan is bound between the first and second comings of Christ. That in other words, during the time of the going out of the gospel and the building up of the church by the Holy Spirit, by the Son of God, we are in this millennial period now. There's not a literal reign of a thousand years to come at the second coming. We're in this period now in some sense. That's the amillennial perspective. Now there's some detailed differences among amillennialists, but... They must insist that Satan has been bound now and that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 is talking about a present reality. Well, this is a challenge for the amillennialists because the scripture teaches us in 1 Peter 5, 8, for example, that the, the evil one, Satan, is a roaring lion prowling around seeking people he might devour. He doesn't sound very bound to me. It doesn't sound like he's been bound with a chain and sealed in an abyss. It sounds like he's a constant problem for the church of Jesus. So the amillennialist has to deal with the fact that in Revelation chapter 20, there's a binding of the devil. And yet, in what the Gospels, Acts, and letters indicate about the work of the evil one, is that it continues during the age of the church. So, come on, amillennialist, how are you going to respond? And then there's another issue, and it's a chronological one. 
Revelation 19 is often thought to be the second coming of Christ, which is then followed in chapter 20 with this statement about the binding of the evil one and the millennium. Well, you could see there that if Revelation 19 is about the coming of Christ, it comes before the millennium passage. In other words, Revelation 19 is pre-millennial. <laughs> that, that's the idea. It's right before Revelation 20. And, and therefore, the amillennialist has to think about whether there is a chronological unfolding of chapters in Revelation, or whether there are certain things that go back and reset and repeat in cycles, a recursive literary style of writing. But nevertheless, the amillennialist is not off the hook. They have to think about what's the relationship between Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. And I'll give you a final example. Another way you can push back against the amillennialist view is that when you read in verse 4, that this is the first resurrection, that they came to life and reigned with Christ. This is the first resurrection. I think I said verse 4 and I meant verse 5. This is the first resurrection. And in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in it. The amillennialist says that this resurrection is not bodily. The first resurrection is a non-bodily resurrection. And there are critiques of amillennialism where they say, well, when people are expecting to be raised from the dead... Those are bodily resurrections. So how do you get something non-bodily with first resurrection? So there are valid concerns and pushbacks to these first three views. And then to the fourth one. In the fourth view, post-millennialism argues that prior to the coming of Christ, the age of the church will eventually give way to a much more golden age or Christianizing of things to such a way, in such a way that the triumph of the gospel has tangible, palpable effects throughout the globe. This is not just conversion. This is transformation societally, culturally, at multiple levels. And the postmillennialist must reckon with the fact that according to Jesus' parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, when the sower plants good seed, the weeds grow alongside the church unto the coming of the Son of Man. And that when you read the Old and New Testaments, the pattern that shapes the expectation for God's people is that there is an expectation of opposition and suffering and persecution and martyrdom. In fact, there were more martyrdoms in the 1900s, 1800s and 1900s than all of previous church history combined. In other words, when it comes to persecution and opposition to the church, we wouldn't look at things in the 1800s and 1900s and say, we're really seeing an upswing on things. It's getting better. And yet the post-millennialist is holding out a theological conviction that the triumph of the gospel will result in such a Christianizing of things that this idea of opposition and suffering and martyrdom is not going to be the way it has been. And so with those concerns about post-millennialism, we come to the end of considering challenges to the four main views. So I don't think any view gets away without legitimate challenges. This is why this is a third tier issue. Because people try to wrestle with the challenges and think, well, where, where do I believe the best evidence points? And what I want to argue in this sixth point, and leading into my seventh, is I want to look at a cumulative case of ten... Quick observations. Ten doesn't sound quick. I am going to do my best. Ten observations to build a cumulative case. First, a symbolic understanding of the thousand years is likely when we remember the nature of the book. So I've touched on this a bit, right? A symbolic understanding of the thousand years is likely when we remember the nature of the book. What kind of book is Revelation? The book of Revelation is not like the book of Acts. When it tells us that the Apostle Paul spent these amount of months here, these amount of years there, we take that seriously and at face value. And when we read the Old Testament prophets and their various visions and oracles that use all sorts of numbers in different ways, and the book of Revelation, which is very much akin to them, then we realize we're dealing with a genre difference. It's not like a narrative. We're dealing with highly symbolic, visionary language because John says, I was caught up in the Spirit, and this is what I saw. It's oracle visionary language. And so the nature of the book increases the likelihood that the number should be not primarily understood literally, but symbolically. Number two, biblical passages before the book of Revelation 
depict the resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous as occurring at the same time. I'm going to repeat that. Biblical passages before the book of Revelation depict the resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous as occurring at the same time. You can look at this in the coming of Christ language in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke uh, 19, in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 5, 28 and 29 that I quoted. In the book of Acts in chapter 24, the Apostle Paul believes in the resurrection, the resurrection of the just and unjust. In the letters, especially 1 and 2 Thessalonians and 1 and 2 Corinthians, the coming of Christ anticipates judgment and resurrection. Vanquishing of evil and vindication of the righteous. So I think when you look at the pattern of biblical passages before the book of Revelation, what does it seem to suggest about the coming of Christ and resurrection? That his coming will bring about the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous simultaneously. Third, biblical passages before the book of Revelation depict the judgment as occurring at the return of Christ. Biblical passages before Revelation depict the judgment as occurring. The reason this is different from the second point is because I was mainly talking there about the resurrection. When does it occur? The pattern of biblical passages seem to suggest at his coming. When does the judgment of the wicked occur? The biblical passages seem to suggest at his coming, the day of the Lord. That when the day of the Lord comes and when the the day of Christ Jesus arrives, amillennialism and postmillennialism believe that that will mean judgment for the wicked. But dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism, their assumption is the return of Christ comes and the wicked are not judged. Fourth, in Revelation 20, the thrones are likely a heavenly scene, not an earthly one. I'm going to press this point for a moment because in Revelation 20 verse 4, John says, Then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. The dispensational and historic premillennial views believe that this is part of the earthly reign and millennial earthly existence of the reign of Christ during those thousand years where there are thrones in an earthly scene. But prior to the book of Revelation, the only thrones that appear on earth are of the beast and the evil one. Whenever a good or positive throne occurs in the book of Revelation, it's always heavenly. And you say, how strong is that pattern? Well, the word thrones is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. And only when it's regarding the authority and work of the evil one is it something that is clearly on earth. In every case of a divine throne and authority, the use of that word prior to Revelation 20 is heavenly in every case. In other words, over 40 occurrences establishing a pattern. And what I want to suggest to you is when you see another example of divine authority, in Revelation 20, verse 4, that this is a heavenly scene. Number five, not only are thrones seen, souls are seen. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And seeing souls is very importantly something that is not bodily, but rather reminds me of Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when the fifth seal is opened. John says, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And those souls in Revelation 6, 9 are praying for judgment in verse 10. And the similarity is there because seeing souls is to see the disembodied saints of God who had been faithful unto death. And in Revelation chapter 6, 9, that's a heavenly picture because they are crying out to God day and night that judgment might come upon the wicked. So I want to suggest to you that the seeing of the vision in Revelation 20 is a heavenly scene confirmed by the language of thrones, which prior to this are heavenly with regard to God, and souls, which suggest heavenly. In number six, the binding of Satan is not general, but qualified very specifically. The binding of Satan is qualified in a very specific sense. He is bound... With this in mind, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I think that qualification matters quite a bit. This doesn't mean the devil has stopped any oppositional or adversarial roles on the earth. But using figurative language, we see that the devil cannot prevent the spread of the gospel and the conversion of the nations as they come to Christ. 
In other words, he may not deceive the nations. It seems significant to amillennialists and to postmillennialists that the devil's binding is not given in a general way, but specifically given with this particular aim in mind, that the deception of the nations might not continue. And you could contrast this with the state of the nations and their darkened understanding in the Old Testament compared to the gospel going to the nations from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth in the gospel's acts and forward. Seven, the binding of Satan is something depicted in Jesus' own public ministry. The binding of Satan is something depicted in Jesus' own earthly ministry. Listen to Matthew 12, 28 and 29. Jesus says, If it's by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the people there were concerned that when he was exercising authority and power and delivering people from demons, that people would go after Jesus with allegiance. They had to convince people this was not divine authority. That Jesus was actually working in the power of Beelzebul. In other words, Jesus was demonstrating a demonic, a a devilish authority. And and that he was doing a work that ought not to be something rejoiced in, delighted in, much less he be followed as a result of it. And Jesus says, if Satan is going to cast out Satan, what sense does that make? A house divided against itself is not going to stand. He's not doing the work of the evil one by the power of the evil one. He's doing the work of God. And so Jesus says... How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man? And the word binding is the same language in Revelation 20. The same original word. The binding of the strong man is Jesus' way of referring to what he's doing in his earthly ministry. A demonic exorcism is in some way a binding of the power and influence of the evil one. Now, did that mean that the evil one, in that binding figurative sense, had no role to be adversarial and accusatory in the age of the church? Well, of course not. We see the Apostle Paul saying to put on the armor of God. We we don't have warfare against the flesh, but against principalities and powers. And In other words, the binding language employed by the gospel writers doesn't cancel out the adversarial role of the evil one. I don't think Revelation 20 does either. You could also consider that in John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33, Jesus is talking about his death coming on the cross When he says at this hour of glorification in the cross, he will be driving out the ruler of this world. He said the ruler of this world will be cast out. In Colossians chapter 2.15, the cross was a defeat of the powers and principalities. In Hebrews 2.14, he has come to conquer the devil. And chiefly that the work of the cross was a defeat of the evil one, a crushing of the serpent. In other words, when you read the gospels and letters... One of the things you you get associated with the work of Jesus is in some way a triumph over or binding of the evil one. Eight. Number eight. The New Testament has the notion of spiritual resurrection as well as physical resurrection. Ephesians chapter two tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God raised us up. He made us alive together with him. Now, wait a second. Are any of us going around in resurrected, glorified bodies? We are not. What is that language of resurrection applied to? Our spiritual state, isn't it? It's our spiritual state that our union with Christ, we are not dead, but alive in him. We have been raised from the dead. Not only does Ephesians 2 teach this, in Romans chapter 6, we're taught that we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. But wait a second, is anyone walking around right now in a physical, resurrected, and glorified body? That is not what that language means. In John chapter 5, a few verses earlier, earlier than the two verses where Jesus talks about the hour coming when the Son of Man is going to send forth his voice to the graves and the tombs, and out will come forth the righteous and the unrighteous to life and to judgment. A few verses before that, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. Now, now a passing from death to life. This language of resurrection used in places like this in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul confirms That resurrection is not only physical. It begins spiritual. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day, though outwardly we waste away and long for our eternal dwelling from God, the resurrection of the dead. 
But to say you can't use language of resurrection to talk about a non-bodily resurrection. I just want to tell you that the Gospels and the letters tell you you can. And they do on multiple occasions. Number nine. Let's think about that phrase, first resurrection, from Revelation. Number nine, calling something first resurrection implies a second. And at this point in Revelation, first and second are playing very important roles as numbers. They are playing roles, first and second, to apply something that is temporary. They are signaling something that is temporary versus eternal. Let me give you some examples. First and second are describing states that are temporary and states that are eternal. So this ninth point is about the first resurrection that implies a second. One that is temporary, this first resurrection, this state, that gives way to something eternal. First and second are used in this point of Revelation in very particular ways. Revelation 20 talks about a second death. A second death that we will not experience. The second death in the book of Revelation is the eternal judgment of the wicked. It's the final eternal state. But a second death implies a first one. Well, so the first death is when we are separated from our bodies. The first death that everybody experiences. And that that disembodied state, that's not an eternal state. We're only disembodied temporarily. There's something lasting that will follow. The first Signal something temporary. The second is a state that is eternal. Another example is in John in, uh, Revelation 21.1. In chapter 21, verse 1, John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. In other words, the second heaven and the second earth, this new creation, was the permanent state God had promised. The first had been temporary. I want to suggest to you that seeing in close proximity language about first and second at this point in Revelation is very instructive on how to read first resurrection as a phrase. First resurrection talks about a temporary state where the disembodied saints are reigning with Christ in the heavenly places, but it will not remain that way. We will be raised from the dead at the coming of Christ. The second resurrection is what we await. So according to premillennialists, the first resurrection is bodily. Both view view 1 and view 2 believe the first resurrection is bodily there in Revelation 20. Amillennialism and postmillennialism do not believe it refers to a bodily resurrection. The the first resurrection is something non-bodily. There are some small quibbles among amillennialists and postmillennialists on how to work all of that non-bodily conclusions out. They don't all agree on how it quite works in some of the details. Some believe that it's just regeneration. And some believe that it's the coming to life and reigning with Christ spiritually in the heavenly places. That's my own leaning, and I get to point number 10. Point number 10. The phrase reigning with Christ in verses 4 and 6 explains what it means to be part of the first resurrection. That you are in the first resurrection as those who have been alive reigning with Christ. I don't think the coming to life refers to our conversion, though resurrection language can be used that way. I was simply illustrating earlier from Romans or the Gospels how a non-bodily sense of resurrection does exist in the Scriptures. But coming to life and reigning with Christ should be understood together, and this coming to life and reigning with Christ is a special comfort for the martyrs in particular because it tells us what had happened to them. In Revelation 20, how did they get uh, to heaven? It tells us that they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. It tells us in verse 4, they had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So when John sees these souls who are reigning with Christ on the thrones in the heavenly places, what is it that caused them to get there? Their faithfulness unto death. In other words, John's seeing here of these reigning with Christ is a comfort for all those who will face opposition for their faith in this world because the people of God die and go to be with Christ. Just like in Revelation 2, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown, crown of life. And I want to suggest to you that in Revelation 20, these people are placed upon these thrones to reign with Christ because Jesus keeps His promises 
And they were faithful unto death and they reigned with him. And it tells us the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, the one faithful unto death will not be hurt by the second death, eternal judgment. They will reign with Christ. So Revelation 24, 20 verse 4 that is. There's only 22 chapters. Uh, 20 verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Revelation chapter 2 helps me then think some about Revelation 20. So those are my 10 points. I won't take time to review them, though I'm happy to repeat any of them after our teaching tonight. In closing, and I'm right on time, number 7. An amillennial interpretation of chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Having looked at all those 10 points and touched on a myriad of other subjects and doctrinal points and texts, what are we getting at in these first six verses? What would an amillennial read of this mean? It would mean that when believers die, and especially those who would face martyrdom for their faith, they can be comforted that the intermediate state will involve their reign with Christ in heaven. They need not fear. And that when they reign with Christ, they, like in Revelation 6-9, will long for the judgment of the wicked, which will come at His second coming. So I take the millennial reign in Revelation 20 to be primarily a heavenly reality comforting believers who have died, that we are to be encouraged about in the age of the church as we spread the gospel and persevere for the cause of Christ. It is an occurrence, it is an occasion of assurance and comfort that when we face opposition and the seed of the serpent, the Lord Jesus knows his own, loves his own, and his own will reign with him. Between the first and second comings of Christ, an millennial view of Revelation 20 believes that the evil one cannot prevent the growth of the church of Christ. Jesus means it in Matthew 16 when he says to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Between the first and second comings of Christ, then we preach the gospel with full confidence that the sovereignty of God will ensure the conversion of all those from the nations who will come to saving faith in Christ. The devil will prowl and rage and tempt and accuse, but he is bound with regard to his ability to deceive the nations. The gospel goes forth and the devil shall not triumph over the church. The binding of the devil in verses 1 to 3 is parallel to the reigning of the saints in verses 4 to 6. So that's an amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. But let me repeat some of the matter that we had begun with. This is a third tier issue. As I've tried to make a case tonight, both the cumulative one and touching on a number of matters along the way, no matter where people land on the issue of the millennium, whether you take one of these four views or you think, I don't like any of these four views, I'm going to make up one of my own. I mean, you could do that, I suppose. We wouldn't be rooted in anything in church history. But no matter where they land on the issue of the millennium, dispensational premillennialists and historic premillennialists and amillennialists and postmillennialists long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus will fulfill all his promises. We believe that the dead will be raised. We believe that evil will be vanquished. And we believe that God will dwell with his people in a new heavens and a new earth where suffering and crying and death shall be no more. We all believe that. Let's pray.